So let me give you a little paradigm. The first statement is this, God is gloriously good. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul talks about the glorious gospel of the blessed God, or the glorious gospel of the happy God. God is gloriously good. Next statement, number two, God is a God of revelation. God has spoken. God has given us His Word. He's given us the Bible. Third statement, that this speaking God is a God who is given us his revelation because he loves us and he wants our flourishing and for his glory to be manifested. So God has given us his word for our well-being, for human flourishing, for societies to prosper, and for the glorification of his triune name. Therefore, in this brief series of sermons, therefore, the fight of being equipped is a lifelong pursuit of being a learner under the hand of Christ for our joy and His glory. So I should desire to be equipped in the things of God to know the Scripture in such a way that my character is fashioned for my joy and well-being and usefulness and His glory. So this this equipping is absolutely essential. In Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, the Lord is speaking about the new covenant he would establish among his people. And he says that uh, he'll write his word upon their hearts. And then in the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah, he restates it. And this is what he says. He says, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them, in my anger, my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. He says this in verse 39. And I will give them one heart and one way, and they, that they may fear me forever for their own good, okay, and the good of their children after them. And I will make them with them an everlasting covenant, and I will never turn away from doing them good. So, so God says, I, I'm doing this for your good. I want you to respect, obey, reverence, worship me, fear me for your own good, well-being, human flourishing, and the good of your children after you. So, so equipping is vitally essential. It's important. And we are to be lifelong learners under the hand of Christ. And I've said the last couple of weeks, the story in Luke 5 where Peter is fishing all night. He's a seasoned fisherman, and he's caught nothing, and he comes in, and Christ, his rabbi, a carpenter by trade, says, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter says, Master, we fished all night, and we've had no success, but because you've asked me to, I will do it. It was obedience, but it was kind of begrudging obedience. And they go out and they let down their nets, and the nets are so full they have to call another boat over, and two boats are about to sink under the weight of an incredible catch of fish. And Peter falls to his knees among all these fish and buries his face and says, Lord, or depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I said discipleship is the process of continuously advancing from obedience, which is good. Obedience is fine and necessary. But going from obedience to 
being enthralled with the character of God from master to Lord. And so that's what the learning process should be like because God is glorious and he's good and he wants to do us well and to advance his name. Now, let me read the passage we're going to be dealing with this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 19a. It's packed with meaning. Paul says this, I charge you, or this charge I trust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So I, I discharge, I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Well, first of all, it's the good warfare. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It's life-enhancing. But it is warfare. We will fight every day of our lives. Right now, you're involved in warfare. You're fighting the devil. You're fighting a worldly system, parts of the worldly system that downgrade the reality of Christ, and you're fighting indwelling sin. And we will never be free of that fight until the day we die. We just won't. So, so, it, so being a disciple is a lifelong process. So, so we, we, we were involved in this, this, this fight. You are to wage the good Warfare. The word for warfare means military campaign. It's not one battle and you're done. It's a military campaign that is ongoing. It is a lifelong fight. And some of us, quite frankly, are on the last lap of our fight in this warfare. Some of us are new in this warfare. Some of us are in the middle. In 1942, in April of 1942, November, excuse me, the, the there was a battle in northern Africa that Winston Churchill called the Battle of Egypt. And a, some generals named Alexander and... Alexander and Montgomery fought against a general named Rommel who fought for the Germans. And two years before that, Churchill stood up when France was in retreat and the world was crumbling around him and he had no allies. And he said, the only thing I have to offer you is blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But two years later, he makes another ominous statement. Singapore has just fallen, unthinkable. The Prince of Wales and the HMS Repulse have both sunk. They thought they were unsinkable. It was a dark time for the British Empire. And yet they won the signal victory in North Africa against Rommel. And Churchill stands up. And he gives this speech, and he says this. He says, um, now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. He goes on and says, I am proud to be a member of that vast commonwealth and society of nations and communities gathered in and around the ancient British monarchy, without which the good cause of World War II might well have perished from the face of the earth. Here we are, and here we stand, a veritable rock of salvation in this drifting world. I mean, this guy could speak. Good grief. But he, he, he says, uh, it is not even the beginning of the end, but perhaps it is the end of the beginning. 
And I say to you that for many of you, this is just the midpoint. Some of you are starting out. Some of you, we can say this is the beginning of the end. But the issue is we're called to faithfulness. We're called to go forward. We're, we're called to wage the good warfare. So as I look at this text, my question is, how do we wage the good warfare? I'm going to give you three points. Point number one, we wage the good warfare by being cognizant of that we have been entrusted with a responsibility. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. We've all received, if you're a believer this morning, and you trust Christ and the work of the cross for your salvation, you have been entrusted with a high calling to represent Christ. We have been entrusted with a charge. The same word is used, same word charge is used in chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says to this timid young man, he says, I urge you to stay at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies that just promote speculation and not the stewardship of faith. He says again in chapter 6, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to keep this commandment, verse 14, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I charge you. The same word in trust is used in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Know the gospel. And the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will then teach others also. You, you, you've been given an incredible charge. You've been entrusted with a charge. Timothy, know this. They said, Timothy, understand this, that, that the kingdom of God is bigger than you are. The kingdom of God, there, there's something glorious you've been called to, and that is to represent the risen Christ who is forever God to your contemporaries, to your culture, to the city of Ephesus in the name of God. It says, and, and, and don't, don't give yourselves to silly myths and endless stupid gyrations of what's going on. He says, be a man who is focused and intent and has something before his eyes that is glorious and good and worthwhile. There's a man named Charles Wesley, John Wesley's brother, became a believer, wrote 400 hymns. His favorite hymn, my favorite hymn, period, is And Can It Be. He wrote another hymn entitled, A Charge to Keep I Have. First stanza goes, A Charge to Keep I Have, A God to Glorify, A Soul to Prepare to Meet the Lord, basically. But look at, let me give you stanzas two and three, but you'll see stanza two here. He says this, To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill, oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. That's powerful. To, to, to serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. If you're a child of God, you've been called into fellowship with the living God to represent him. You've been entrusted with the charge. Oh, oh may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. The next answer. Arm me with jealous care as in thy sight to live. And oh, thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. See, Lord, fill me with, with jealous care and in thy sight to live. And 
prepare me to give a strict account. The last stanza is really bad theology, so don't just kick out the last stanza. He kind of misses it. But these are great. These are great. That I will give a response the way I've lived my life. I've been entrusted with a charge. I've been given a trust to keep. And, and so Paul says, you do this and you stay away from things that are just, just silly. He says, Timothy, I, I charge you to keep what's been given to you and don't be moved. Now, as if you're a believer, as, as a husband or a father or a wife or a mom or a son or a friend or in the marketplace where you work, you've been given a trust and you stand strong. And Paul says, he says, Timothy, don't, don't be snookered by these silly myths. He says in 1 Timothy 4, he says, verse 6, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. See that good, beautiful doctrine that you followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is the value in every way for the, for the present life and the life to come. And Paul says, he says Timothy, when, when, when you think about what you're to do, he says in chapter 2, you, you live like a, like a soldier who wants to please your commanding officer. You live like an athlete who's in training. You live like the hard-working farmer. See, you, you're, you're loyal. You get up every day and do the right thing, and you work hard because you've been called into fellowship with the living God. And as you do that, don't, don't be sidelined by silly, stupid arguments that have nothing to do with the nature of faith. Silly, silly talk. And I just thought, we live in a culture of silly talk. I, I go to several websites and read the, read the headlines every day. I'll be honest with you, one of them has been Fox News. Because they give headlines, and I think, well, I want to read that. Or I go to BBC, or I go to this, or whatever. And, but I've gotten to where I'm, just, I'm kind of getting sick and tired of Fox News, their website. Because... At the top, headlines that are worthwhile. And then as you scroll down the page, it gets more and more puerile and stupid and childish. Until you get to the bottom and you're going, are you kidding me? You really want me to know about keeping up with the Kardashians? Like I give a flying flip? Like I need to have that stuff in my brain? And so I'm just going, punt. Go to other websites where you can get good material. I mean, to me, we're surrounded by this, and it's a fight. Listen, it's a fight to not fill your mind with trivialities that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And, and who, who cares? Never forget years ago when the game Trivial Pursuit was popular. And sometimes when I played the game and did okay, it's like watching Jeopardy. You say, man, I could nail it tonight. And then, then you go, but who cares? Who cares who won the Rose Bowl in 1948? I mean, who cares? I mean, Oregon, but that's beside the point. And, uh, but anyway, that, that's just, you, 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 you. so, so it, he says, you, you, you're in training, and, and so you, you walk under the banner of Christ. You're called to significance. And Jesus says in Matthew 28, his ascension statement, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you, and I'll be with you to the very end. So part of our calling is to represent Christ to the nations, to the communities, to our dorms, to our barracks, to our street, in the marketplace. It's a high calling. It's a high calling. So not to be sidelined. So this, this concept that we come up with, equip you and equip them, is not just something out there. It's, it's, to me, essential to what it means to be a child of God. You are to be a lifelong learner under the banner of Christ. As a disciple, that's what a disciple is, a lifelong learner. And also, as we've heard earlier, we're also leaky buckets. I leak. I need brothers and sisters in my life to encourage me, to teach me. I need the Lord's day. I I need to be with God's people. My wife coming to church this morning said, I am so excited to be at church today. She said, the last two weeks I've been grandmom on duty all during church. She says, I am glad to be at church today because I get to hear a sermon. I've never heard that before from her. That was pretty cool. I said, well, hey, yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I hope it, hope it did good, you know that. But, but what she was saying is, I need to sit in worship and under the authority of the Bible with brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's one of, one of God's appointed means to build us and encourage us and strengthen us. So, so, so point one, I've got to realize I've, I've been entrusted with a charge. Now, Matthew 24 and 25 is called the Olivet Discourse. It's the fifth discourse in the book of Matthew, and it deals with the last days or end times. It depends on how you study them, but he's talking about future events. And it's, he's encouraging, Jesus is encouraging his followers to be people of faithfulness who do the right thing and who are prepared for the coming of the Lord. And you get to chapter 25, and he tells two very well-known parables. The first is the parable of the ten virgins. There were five Jesus says, wise virgins and five foolish virgins who went out to welcome the bridegroom. He didn't come the appointed hour, so they grew tired and they had torches and they fell asleep supposedly. And somebody said, here's the bridegroom. They woke up and the five wise virgins who had a flask of oil with which they would replenish the torch poured the oil, lit the torch, and went forward. The five foolish didn't bring the flask of oil, so they couldn't light their torch. And Jesus calls one group wise and one group foolish. And then his comment was this. He says, be very careful how you live because the bridegroom will come in an hour you do not not expect. So so you live with readiness. But there's another point here. The other point is that that you, you need to be replenished. I think that's what he's saying here. You've got to be replenished. You need to have your torch replenished. You need to be taught. You need to be aware. And then he goes straight from there into another well-known parable that I'll just condense. A wealthy landowner had three servants. He was going on a distant journey. He called them together, and he gave them all talents, of, of, which were vast amounts of money. Not like 10 bucks. It was a huge amount of money. To one guy, he gave five talents, which is, a, let's say, 500 grand, a lot of money. To another, he gave two talents, and to the third, he gave one, vast amounts of money, and he went out. And servant one and two were good, really good entrepreneurs. 
They put his money to work. They started businesses. They did investments. They did this and they did that. And, and they, they did well. And so the master came back at a time they were not expecting, and he called them in for an account. And the first said, Lord, you gave me this sum of money. I invested it, and I'm going to give it back to you. We gave him five more talents. I mean, 100% return on your money. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. The servant too came and says, here's the two talents. I invested and worked hard, and here's four talents. 100% return. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, first of all, I want to meet that financial manager. I want him to manage my money. That's a really good return. So the third guy came in, and this is what the Scripture says. It says that, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground, and here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scatter no seed, really quoting back to him. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. In other words, he says, listen, you're a lazy, wicked servant. I mean, you could have gone to the corner bank and made a deposit with my money and earned 5% interest. But you're, you're so lazy, you didn't even go to the bank. You're wicked and you're lazy. You're wicked and you're lazy because you do not know the heart of your master. And you're wicked and you're lazy because you've misrepresented him. You, you're, so no, he doesn't hear, well done, good and faithful servant. See, we have a charge to keep. We have been entrusted with responsibilities. We will stand, we're saved by faith alone through the work of Christ alone, but we will give an account for the way we live our lives. I've got to understand that. Now let me say this about the text. He says, this, I, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child. I, I love this. I'm going to go here for a while. My child is a term of endearment. Paul is reminding Timothy how much he loves him. He's saying he has an affection for Timothy. He says, my child. In 2 Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy regarding their separation, starting in verse 3. He says, Timothy, I thank God whenever I remember you in my prayers night and day. I'm praying for you, Timothy. And I remember verse 4, your tears and I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I remember, Timothy, how you wept when we parted, and I want to be with you so that you can fill me with joy. When I'm in your presence, Timothy, I just laugh and I'm happy because God is working in your life. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced dwells in you as well. Timothy, I know you're, in God, you're God's man, just like your mom and your grandmama were. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For, for Timothy, Paul's not, God has not given us a spirit of, of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So it's just, it's just full of positive exhortations to Timothy. 
Timothy, I believe in you. I love you. Your faith is vibrant and real like your mom's and your grandmom's. Timothy, I, I long to see you so that you can just fill my heart with overabounding joy. See, here's my point. If, if we're to fight the good fight of faith, we've got to be surrounded by people who look at us and love us and believe in us. Paul says to the whole church at Thessalonica, I love you with the love of a mother who is tenderly nursing her baby. Now, that, it doesn't get any sweeter than that. If you've ever seen recently mothers nursing their children, the compassion and the love and the energy and just the embrace, it is a beautiful thing. If I'm going to go strong in faith, I've got to have people who, who just believe in me, who pray for me, who say, you know, God's doing something in your life. Or, or, or say to people, to maybe a child who's not doing well, let me tell you something. I'm going to love you deeper and stronger and with more vibrancy than any subculture will ever love you because I'm your mom, I'm your dad. I've used this illustration before, but I just think it's so good. 2005, there was a movie released. It's one of my five favorite movies of all time, Cinderella Man. If you haven't seen it, you really should. You really should. It's a true story about a man who became the world heavyweight champion in 1936. His name was John J. Braddock. John J. Braddock was one of seven children. The movie, the movie is Russell Crowe and Renee Zellwinger. They don't get much better than that. They're very gifted. So in real life, John J. Braddock uh, is one of seven children, very poor home, Irish home, and he marries a woman named Mae Fox, and they have three children very quickly, and John J. Braddock, as a young man, was a great boxer. He was like 25 and two, and he had won some impressive bouts, and, and then he had a, a match where he shattered his right hand. And uh, he tried to come back too quickly, and he lost his ability to fight. And over the next 30 fights, I think he was 10 and 20. He became an also-ran. He became a nothing. And he couldn't get fights. And he had to, to depend upon the Catholic Relief Agency for money to feed his children. And he finally was able, he was a longshoreman, part-time for a while. And then he was able to recover and get back into boxing. And he started doing pretty good. And then he won two or three fights that he should not, never have won. And all of a sudden, his stock started going up. And his wife played with him not to box. And she was afraid he was going to get hurt. And then there was a champion. The world champion was a guy named Max Baer from Germany. And Max Baer punished people when he fought. He was incredibly gifted. A big man with a long reach. And Max Baer's manager contacted John J. Braddock. And he said, we, we need a fight from Madison Square Garden on this date. Can you do it? And they were, they were blown away. Well, you know. And really, it was just kind of a filler on the schedule to take the next step up. John J. Braddock was a, really a nobody. It's like Kent State was yesterday for Clemson. Just, just a, it's a walkthrough type thing. And so they contracted to fight. And in the movie, the wife pled with her husband, please don't fight. This guy's going to kill you. I mean, literally. I mean, that's not one way to build up your husband. But she says, uh, I fear for your life. I don't want my children to be orphans. Please don't fight. We'll make money somehow, but don't fight this guy. He says, I've got to. I've got to feed my kids. And so she says, I, I can't support you. And it kind of breaks his heart. And so in the movie, so good. He's in the locker room being taped up before the heavyweight bout with his manager. And the odds, are t the odds really were 10 to 1 on the best 
best bet. I mean, nobody gave him a chance. And so there's a knock on the door. They said, come in, and there stands his wife. And the manager says, ooh, I'm leaving. And the wife came in, and she said, you know, you can't do this without me. He's from Bergen, New Jersey. Okay, that's his background. You can't do this without me. And he says, well, you know, I don't know. It's just, but you say you've got to fight. And then she says this. I, every, I, this. To me, this is one of the greatest moments in movie history. She's a wife. She says, you just remember who you are. You're the bulldog of Bergen and the pride of New Jersey. You're everybody's hope. This is the Great Depression. Okay. You're everybody's hope. And your kid's hero. And you are the champion of my heart. You are John, James J. Braddock. And they embrace. Now, let me tell you something. Wives, there's not a husband who wouldn't walk through a meat grinder if his wife told him that. And, and then Ron Howard added this line he should not have. And then she'll say, him, says, I'll see you at home. Please, Jimmy, please come home. In other words, don't get killed. I thought, you know, come on, don't do just, just, just you know, believe in him. Maybe he's a boxer, you know. See, Rocky II is much better when Adrian says, win. Remember that? That's a great moment in history, too. But anyway, this is, this is true. Rocky's made up. This is true. And he goes out and he wins in, the, in 15 rounds a unanimous decision. And I, 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 I think of that and I think, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, the wife is to respect her husband, verse 33. And the issue in the text that is not answered is respect freely given or is respect earned. It's not, it's not answered in the text. And I would say as far as a husband, I need to earn it. But as far as a wife, it's to be given. The Bible says husbands love your wives like Jesus loved the church. So, so we need to have people around us who just pray for us and believe in us and say, there's a God who's a worker in your life and I'm trusting that and I love you and I believe in you. And, and, and we, we need that. Timothy, my child, is just filled with pathos. Anyway, we need that. Thank you for being that for me. So many of you. Thank you so much. Number two, though we fight the good fight of faith, in the text it says, by them, by these prophecies, made about you by, by them, you may wage the good warfare. So I said last week that the prophecies were when Timothy was set apart, the older men, the church came around him and they, they put their hands on him and they prayed for him and embraced him and they probably spoke the promises of the Old Testament over him and they said, Timothy, go forward. We, you know, God is a God of process. He's a God at work in you. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, Timothy, but on you shall meditate day and night. Joshua 1.8. And just do the right thing, Timothy. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119. And they just embraced Timothy and they believed in him. And then Paul says, by them, you will wage the good warfare. And I thought, you know, you look at this text, you say, well, what's the application here? Here's the application. By this book and the promises of this book, you wage the good warfare. It's pretty simple. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 says this, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus 
Sound words. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. There's the word again, entrusted. So, so you, you, you guard the sound words, the apostolic message that's been entrusted to you. So if I'm to fight the good fight, I've got to be a person who takes the Scripture and thinks it. Verse 14 of chapter 2, 2 Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. But you, Timothy, you do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble for it only will lead to more ungodliness. So, 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 Timothy, you be a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So I just thought, you know, what, what's the application? We need to know the Bible to wage good warfare. So, in your worship guide, there's a gray part on the back of the outline. And we're going to have a little card printed next week, but I've chosen some verses for September, October, November, December that I want us to meditate on and think about and pray through and try to memorize as much as you can. Because by these, by the Word of God, we wage warfare. Let me just read the two passages for the month of September. One is from Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields his fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. What a promise. And so he goes, Lord, I... I want to be planted by streams of water. And I, I want to produce my fruit in season. I, I want to be a fruit-yielding disciple. Or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. It's profitable. The Bible is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, so you think about that and say, well, Lord, thank you for the Scripture because it, it equips me for every good work. I just say this, by them we wage the good warfare. This is the sword of the Spirit. God is. God is a revelatory God. He's spoken for my good and His glory. So you pick it up. Fight it. The third way you fight good warfare. He says, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Now, follow this. Follow, follow me. The reason I think this is important to understand, he says, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Faith is a body of truth centered on the work of Christ on the cross. So, you hold on to the work of Jesus on the cross for your sins and, and the apostolic tradition. You hold on to that, and then you develop a good conscience. You see, as you study the Bible, and as you love the Scripture, and as you're with God's people, God's Word speaks to you. But it's faith and then a good conscience. If you just say to someone, now develop a good conscience that's not governed by faith, you can go off in two different directions. 
One direction you can run off into is to say, well, my conscience is clear regarding fill in the blank. And it may be totally opposed to Scripture. My conscience is clear. And I know people who are living like wild, crazy libertines who would say, well, you know, my conscience is clear. Well, if your conscience isn't governed by Scripture and you're responding to your own passions, that's a bad place to be. But there is another extreme. I think it's the minority. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about people with a, a seared conscience. And this is what he says. This is the minority report, my observation. He says, there are some people out there who are uh, liars whose consciences are seared or carterized, or they can no longer think well. This is what they say. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So there are certain people out there who, if they bypass the faith that's found in Christ and the revelation from God, will become super, super, super legalistic, aesthetic people. And they will forbid marriage, forbid sexuality. You don't practice intimacy in marriage, so you don't get married. Remember the UFO cults years ago when... California, they all dressed in a unisex way, and they were very bright, brilliant people. Some of them were multimillionaires. I mean, they're very, very bright, but they really believe they were communicating with these absorbed and, and going to a UFO ship, and, and so they, they, they made a vow of being uh, asexual and genderless, and that's one way to, to kill off a cult, by the way, is to forbid marriage. Just think about, do the math. It's just hard to pull it off, but anyway... And so there was this, they, they, they all committed suicide. Very, very bright people at the beginning of the tech revolution. So, so these people said no sex in marriage and you can't eat certain foods. Now, I would sign up on that if they said Brussels sprouts and cauliflower. But other than that, you know, they said, you know, and then Paul says, you know, the food was made by God for you to enjoy Sexuality and marriage was made for you to enjoy. So, so and you need to have a life that's governed by Scripture. If you don't, you can write off in two different directions. That's why the Apostle Paul is given a defense before Felix in Acts 24. And he says this. Starting in verse 14, but, but this I confess to you that according to the way, the way of Christ, which you guys call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, these Pharisees, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pain to have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. Now, clear conscience toward God and man means that I do what God tells me to do and I walk in obedience. I listen to the word. One of the greatest statements ever made about the conscience was made by a monk named Martin Luther, who four years before this has started a movement called the Reformation. 500 years ago, this October. And four years later, he had written all these pamphlets and all this material, and he was called before the Holy Roman Emperor. 
and, uh, and some of the royal heads of various houses in Europe and this simple little monk and his brown friar robe stood before them and they said, Martin Luther, you must recant of what you've written. And, and Luther said, uh, can I have a night to pray about it? I mean, he prayed about it, but Luther really believed that he would be basically murdered on the spot if he didn't, if, if he didn't recant. And so they brought him before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and all these leaders and all these church leaders. And the next day, and there were just hundreds of people hanging outside the window. It was, it was, it was an event. And they said to Luther, the monk who had read the Bible and saw the gospel of grace, they said, do you recant? This is what he said. It's one of the greatest statements in church history. He says, my conscience, okay, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I see the forgiveness of sins. I see the glory of the cross. I see the wonder of Christ. Because of that, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. He thought that was his epitaph. He thought that was it. But he was protected. And, and he lived uh, another 21 years. So Luther says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And see, my question is, as I read the Bible and pray over it, does God, by his spirit, nudge me in different ways? I mean, it's not just a devotional exercise or just an intellectual. It is a living document taken by the Holy Spirit and applied to my heart. So, so one way I fight the good fight of faith, the military campaign, is I hold on to faith which informs a good conscience. I have faith, conscience, faith, conscience. So brothers and sisters, fight the good fight. It's a good fight. Wage the good military campaign. Some of you are at the beginning of the end. Some of you are at the beginning of the beginning. Some of you are halfway through. But fight on. We're going to just stand and read these two. These are our September verses on the back. So take your worship guide. We're going to stand. We're going to read together from Psalm 1 and then 2 Timothy 3. So let's read together. Are you ready? Psalm 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, stand this morning in the flow of church history with our stories being written by your hand. We're, we're part of a movement.
and you've called us to fight the good warfare of faith. Help us to realize that we've been entrusted with a high calling and responsibilities. Help us to understand that we need people around us who love us and pray for us and care for us. Help us to be people who wage the good warfare with the Word of God. And God, as we do that, may we hold on to faith and a good conscience. I pray, God, you would move in our hearts. You would move in our congregation and in our city. I pray you would teach us and push us and prod us because you're good and you're glorious and you're kind and we love you. So this day, we commit our way to you. And we pray, Lord, that we would be like trees planted deeply by streams of living water. And Jesus, you're the living water. And may we produce fruit, and may we be people whose, whose, whose lives prosper as we look to you, and, and we'll be radiant with joy because our sins are forgiven and that we have the hope of heaven. So bless us, I pray, God. Please, please bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.